Welcome to the All of Christ for All of Life podcast, brought to you by Canon Plus. This week's episode is the introduction to Stephen Wolf's The Case for Christian Nationalism. Full audiobook available now on Canon Plus. Introduction The Great Renewal. 1. The Storm. The indignant crowd, waving flags and gripping their weapons, gathered around the barriers and gates, pushing and shouting amidst smoke and furor. The guards of the building, a towering symbol of civil authority and sanctity, struggled to decide what to do, as an insurrection, or worse, seemed imminent. Suddenly, the mob rushed a courtyard, and some began climbing onto buildings. A gate was opened, and the most fanatical of the crowd surged to enter as if it were a planned assault. The guards shouted at them to leave, but in all the excitement, many interpreted the guards' gestures to be welcoming them in. Gunfire broke out, and several were killed, including officers. An observer might have heard cries of liberty from one side, equality from the other, then also fraternity. But another sinister sound could be heard, or death. The fighting continued, and calls for ceasefire were rejected. The building was taken and the victors declared, Thus we take revenge on traitors. This day changed everything, and we live in its consequences. One famous writer called it a turning point of modern times. This day, that is July 14, 1789, the storming of the Bastille in Paris, France, marked the secularization of our history and the disincarnation of the Christian God, as Albert Camus wrote in The Rebel. This day sparked the French Revolution, the instigators of which sought to overthrow the principle of divine right. Camus continues, God played a part in history through the medium of kings, but his representative in history has been killed, for there is no longer a king. Therefore, there is nothing but a semblance of God, relegated to the heaven of principles. The revolutionaries may well refer to the gospel, but in fact, they dealt a terrible blow to Christianity from which it has not yet recovered. The regicide, or tyrannicide, of Louis XVI was a sort of deicide, not that God was killed, of course, but that in the king's execution, the revolutionaries sought to establish political atheism. The seculum was secularized, and the recognition of God and his will for man, both the principles and purpose of life, were set aside, relegated to heaven or to religious institutions. The children of the French Revolution, both Christian and non-Christian, are still with us and continue the revolution. The explicit absence of God in public life is now normal, and this new normal hardly needs official enforcement. With weakness of will and self-abnegation, Western Christians gaze at the ravishment of their Western heritage, either blaming themselves or, even worse, reveling in their humiliation. Christians today live in and fully embrace the conditions of deicide. We have not simply tied our own hands, we've handed over, without much fuss, the divine powers ordained for our good. The people of God have become accustomed to a life without them, even learning to love abuse from God-granted authorities that He ordained for their good. The chief philosopher of the French Revolution, Jean-Jacques Rousseau, was wrong in his understanding of Christianity, 
but he did accurately capture the tendency of Christians to take pleasure in their oppression. His comments are so remarkably recognizable that they are worth quoting in full. He writes, Christianity as a religion is entirely spiritual, occupied solely with heavenly things. The country of the Christian is not of this world. He does his duty, indeed, but does it with profound indifference to the good or ill success of his cares. Provided he has nothing to reproach himself with, it matters little to him whether things go well or ill here on earth. If the state is prosperous, he hardly dares to share in the public happiness, for fear he may grow proud of his country's glory. If the state is languishing, he blesses the hand of God that is hard upon his people. If the power is abused by him who wields it, it is the scourge wherewith God punishes his children. There would be scruples about driving out the usurper, public tranquility would have to be disturbed, violence would have to be employed, and blood spilt. All this accords ill with Christian meekness. And after all, in this vale of sorrows, what does it matter whether we are free men or serfs? The essential thing is to get to heaven, and resignation is only an additional means of doing so. Christianity preaches only servitude and dependence. Its spirit is so favorable to tyranny that it always profits by such a regime. True Christians are made to be slaves, and they know it, and do not much mind. This short life counts for too little in their eyes. Sound familiar? You see it daily in Christian think pieces. Rousseau is indeed right in a way. Christianity is often used as a coping device for inaction, even when under tyranny and slavery. It is a theological means to psychologically endure one's Gnostic unwillingness to struggle against earthly abuse. At its worst, theology is wielded to find pleasure in one's humiliation. Many Christian leaders today are children of Rousseau in this regard, actively undermining Christian political action that opposes political atheism. They advance a sort of Stockholm Syndrome theology. Such Christians who separate God from public institutions have even adopted Rousseau's civil religion, though likely unwittingly. Instead of establishing Christianity, Rousseau called for a civil profession of faith, consisting of social sentiments without which a man cannot be a good citizen. Violators are declared to be antisocial. These dogmas must be few, simple, and exactly worded without explanation of commentary. After the January 6, 2021 riot, Christian leaders expressed dismay that our democracy, which affirms universal tolerance and pluralism, was attacked by a mob that rampaged through the sacred halls of Congress. Their commitment to these modern norms should not surprise us. For decades, theologians have developed theologies that exclude Christianity from public institutions, but require Christians to affirm the language of universal dignity, tolerance, human rights, anti-nationalism, anti-nativism, multiculturalism, social justice, and equality and they ostracize from their own ranks any Christian who deviates from these social dogmas. They've effectively Christianized the modern West's social creed. The Christian leaders most immersed in the modern West's civil religion are those who loudly denounce the civil religion of Christian nationalism. This book challenges the social dogmas of our time, the secularist civil religion, by offering a positive account of Christian nationalism.
In addition to justifying the institutionalization of Christianity, I offer reasons and exhortations for Christians to act in competence for that institutionalization. The problem we face today is not simply the absence of arguments, but the lack of will for our political objectives. I hope to enliven in the hearts of Christians a sense of home and hearth, and a love of people and country, out of which springs action for their good. 2. Definition Past Usage The term Christian nationalism is, in our time, a word of derision, used against groups of white evangelicals and Pentecostals in America. Few agree on what it means, though all agree that whatever it means, it is most certainly bad. Indeed, it is bad is ultimately all that matters for those who use it. It is a plastic word, to use U.A. Porkson's expression. The precise meaning of plastic words cannot be discerned, but through context an author can be precise about which connotation of the word is being used. Since anti-nationalism is a social dogma, connecting Christian and nationalism is effective for wielding social power or the public ire against dissident Christian groups, whether these groups are real or imagined. It is no surprise that Christian nationalism is used in the context of the 2021 riot at the Capitol building in Washington, D.C. Associating the term with a widely condemned event gives the accusation of Christian nationalism tremendous weight in rhetoric. The term has socio-rhetorical power. The connotation is far more useful than its possible denotations. But this negative connotation and lack of denotation is new to the term. Well back into the 19th century, Christian nationalism was used almost exclusively in a positive sense. Indeed, there were self-described Christian nationalists. For example, William Henry Fremantle, a well-respected and accomplished Anglican priest, published a lecture in 1885 on Christian nationalism. He affirmed the belief in the divine character of political rule and in the unity of the sacred and the secular in the Christian nation. Opposing those who wanted the system of public worship to be held apart from the general life, he argued that the whole life of man is essentially religious, and politics, the sphere of just relations between men, especially become religious when conducted in a Christian spirit. Nothing can be more fatal to mankind or to religion itself than to call one set of things or persons religious and another secular, when Christ has redeemed the whole. Thus, for Fremantle, we should not compartmentalize the Christian religion to an instituted church and clergy. All of life, including public life, ought to be Christian. The institutional church simply fulfills one function of the great community or nation, which itself and as a whole possesses this divine sanction. In other words, the institutionalized ministry that ministers to a Christian people springs from the people which itself originally possesses this ministry. A few decades later, the Chinese theologian T.C. Chow, 1888-1979, wrote in 1927 about Chinese Christians wanting a Christian nationalism. He reasons this way, Chinese Christians are Christians, but they are also citizens of China. According to them, nationalism and Christianity must agree in many things. For if there are no common points between the two, then how can Chinese citizens become Christians, and how can Chinese Christians perform the duties of citizens? 
1972, Albert Kleege published Black Christian Nationalism, in which he calls for a redefinition of salvation along black Christian nationalist lines. Black Christian nationalism calls men to a rejection of individualism and offers a process of transformation by which the individual may divest himself of individualism and submerge himself in the community life of the group. The most recent discourse around Christian nationalism is both negative and almost always ascribed to white Americans. Indeed, it is often called white Christian nationalism. Philip Gorski and Samuel Perry recently published The Flag and the Cross, White Christian Nationalism and the Threat to American Democracy. Their definition is a constellation of beliefs, which is technically not a definition. And the unstated point of the book is certainly to secure the term's negative connotations by associating it with heretical social views. Since it is largely a work of activist sociology, its content is mostly irrelevant to the content of this book. They disregard and dismiss the reasons for Christian nationalist belief and instead rely on racial explanations, such as whiteness, to account for Christian nationalism. My intent here is neither to defend nor reject what they consider Christian nationalism, nor to denounce or distance myself from its alleged connotations. This is a work of Christian political theory, not sociology. If the social scientists wish to critique my book, they must step out of social science, suspend their belief in social dogma, and enter rational inquiry. Definition for this book One of the oddest aspects of Christian nationalism discourse is that despite its great threat to democracy, few people in recent years have self-identified as Christian nationalists. Thus, very few have explicitly argued for it in recent years. Recent attempts to define the term begin with some idea of the people they want to capture with the term. Hence, they define it by their desired extension, that is, based on the things or people they want the term to refer to. My definition, however, begins not with the term's extension, but with the intention of the words. That is, I proceed from the meaning or denotation of the words involved, particularly nation and nationalism, and I then consider nationalism modified by the term Christian. Here is my definition. Christian nationalism is a totality of national action consisting of civil laws and social customs conducted by a Christian nation as a Christian nation in order to procure for itself both earthly and heavenly good in Christ. The purpose of this book is to show that Christian nationalism, as defined, is just the ideal arrangement for Christians and something worth pursuing with determination and resolve. The reader likely had a different definition in mind, but this may not indicate substantive disagreement. Maybe, like Gorski and Perry, you list a set of beliefs, perhaps something about national obligations to God. I agree that nations have obligations to God. My intent is to define Christian nationalism according to the denotation of the two words in relation to each other. Whether you like my definition or not is largely irrelevant to the arguments that follow, since I likely affirm at some point what you include in your definition. Since parts of my definition may be unclear or unexpected, I devote some space in this introduction to explicating the definition. I break this down carefully and in detail because the discussion on Christian nationalism today lacks the sort of precision and care that early generations of Reformed writers brought to Christian political thought. 
What I say below and in the following chapters might be difficult and complex, but my intent is to continue in, or perhaps help resurrect, the Reformed political tradition's commitment to complete, analytical, and demonstrative argumentation. 3. Explicating the Definition Christian nationalism is nationalism modified by Christianity. My definition of Christian nationalism is a Christianized form of nationalism, or, put differently, a species of nationalism. Thus, I treat nationalism as a genus, meaning that all that is essential to generic nationalism is true of Christian nationalism. Whatever I describe to nationalism in this work is ipso facto ascribed to Christian nationalism. My definition of nationalism is similar to that of Christian nationalism, though with less content. Nationalism refers to a totality of national action consisting of civil laws and social customs conducted by a nation as a nation in order to procure for itself both earthly and heavenly good. Absent from this definition is Christianity. The Christian nation and the sole post-fall means of obtaining heavenly good, namely in Christ. As we'll see in the following chapters, the addition of these words in Christ matters a great deal. Nevertheless, the gospel does not supersede, abrogate, eliminate, or fundamentally alter generic nationalism. It assumes and completes it. Modern Christian political theorists often call nationalism an ideology usually assuming that all ideologies are bad and idolatrous. I see no use in disputing whether it is an ideology. Ideology is usually either loosely defined or defined according to its abuse, rather than according to what it is. Whether my conclusions classify Christian nationalism under ideology has no relevance as to whether those arguments are sound. The reader will also have to keep in mind that I am not necessarily affirming any supposed connotations of nationalism whatever those might be, and thus they cannot be ascribed to my definition or positions prima facie. In other words, the reader should not assume that I am trying to justify or explain away any historical example of nationalism or any of the various moral qualities often attributed to nationalism. A Totality of National Action A totality of national action is not as difficult to comprehend as it might first appear. I'll begin with an example. Though a soccer team wins its match by individual players scoring goals, we say that the team won the match, not the individuals who scored the goals. This is because although the individual action of scoring is the key to winning, these actions were supported and made possible by the actions of the other team members, including the defensive players. So we say that the team won, and that winning is a team effort because each player has his role with regard to winning. Thus, a totality of action can be defined as a set of actions that are interrelated, such that their effect, e.g. winning the match, is a product of the whole, e.g. both defensive and offensive actions, not any particular part of the whole. A totality of national action, being the formal cause of Christian nationalism, refers to all the actions that a nation expects of its members for their overall national good. These range from great acts of sacrifice to mundane, everyday things, like caring for one's children. It is a totality, because although each action has a good unique to it, together each strengthens, supports, or makes possible other actions to form an organic whole. A mother nursing her child has the child's immediate good in mind. 
but that action, as part of a totality of action in the nation, is also for the national good, for well-nursed children grow up to be healthy, productive, and sacrificial participants in the nation. In this way, the nursing of children is a national action, and the good of nursing is not only the child's good directly, but also the nation's good. In other words, the good of the mother in nursing her child transcends the immediate good of child nourishment. National action, therefore, is not merely extraordinary or heroic action, but also includes the ordinary and mundane. One can hardly expect anything extraordinary in a nation where the ordinary is absent. These actions are interrelated, such that each depends on the others to do them well. One can hardly expect mothers to care well for their children when they exist in poor conditions, where fatherly affection, productive activity, good civil governance, social discipline, manners, and religion are absent. Thus, national actions compose a totality of action, each relying on the others for its possibility, support, and perfection, and together those actions procure for the nation its national good. Or, to put things simply, you typically cannot do anything well unless conditions are set for you to do it well and those conditions are established by other actions conducted both by you and by others. Subsequently, by this mutual support, a nation achieves its national good. Consisting of Civil Laws and Social Customs Civil laws and social customs are the material cause or content of Christian nationalism. These are rules of action that determine what you ought to do and ought not to do. Civil law commands action explicitly, while social customs implicitly predispose people to action. These rules are often very general, allowing people the freedom to choose among different options, e.g. choosing one's vocation. Now, since the end of Christian nationalism is the nation's good, which I discuss in more detail below, rules of action are proper only if they conduce to the nation's good. Thus, civil law and social customs, when proper, order the Christian nation to their earthly and heavenly good. Being a totality of action, law and custom form an interrelated and oftentimes redundant web of obligation that orders everything ultimately to the national good. For example, tossing trash from cars is illegal in the United States, but it is clear that social opprobrium must assist those laws to keep the streets clean. Furthermore, there are many desired rules of action covered by custom that civil law cannot effectively command. Conducted by a Christian nation as a Christian nation In Christian nationalism, the nation is conscious of itself as a Christian nation and acts for itself as a Christian nation. Christian national consciousness is the ground and animating principle of their action. This is the efficient cause of nationalism, for it speaks of who is acting and also of the impetus of action. It is analogous to a man with faith in Christ who, understanding himself to be a Christian man, acts as a Christian man for the good of body and soul. Or it is like a family of Christians who, seeing themselves as a Christian family, act as such for their earthly and heavenly good, for example, family worship. Christian nationalism is a Christian people acting for their own good in light of their Christian nationhood. Viewed as a whole, the Christian nation acts for itself by a three-step process. 1. It achieves a national will for itself. 2. That will is mediated through authorities that the people institute. 
and three, the people act according to the dictates of that mediation. That is, the national will for its good establishes civil authority and constructs a social world, both of which prescribe concrete duties and norms, which the people then act on. Thus, the entity that causes Christian nationalism is chiefly the people, not Christian magistrates, though magistrates are necessary to direct the will of the people into concrete action. To procure for itself both earthly and heavenly good in Christ. The purpose or final cause of Christian nationalism is to establish the best possible conditions for the procurement of what I call the complete good, the goods of this life and the life to come. In my generic definition of nationalism, I delineated earthly good and heavenly good. I did this because, as I argue in the next chapter, ordering people to heavenly life is a natural end for even the generic nation. That is, it is neither a new command nor something introduced by the gospel. Had Adam not fallen, the nations of his progeny would have ordered themselves to heavenly life. Thus, heavenly good is an end of the nation. Since the gospel is now the sole means to heavenly life, nations ought to order themselves to the gospel in the interest of their heavenly good. In Christ modifies earthly good as well. The gospel adds no new principles of earthly life, but earthly life is restored because of sanctification, which is the infusion of Christ's holiness in us. Furthermore, all earthly goods ought to be ordered to Christ. Thus, the totality of Christian national action orders the nation to procure the complete good in Christ. The specific difference between generic nationalism and Christian nationalism is that for the latter, Christ is essential to obtaining the complete good. Pagan and secularist nations are true nations, but they are incomplete nations. Only the Christian nation is a complete nation. I am not saying that a nation as a nation can receive eternal life, strictly speaking, Rather, a nation as a nation can act for itself by social and civil power so that externally heavenly goods are made apparent and available to all, so that each person is prepared and encouraged to take them for eternal life. Hence, a Christian nation would, for example, support the spiritual administration of word and sacrament. A nation has no power in itself to bring anyone internally to true faith, to realize heavenly good in individuals. But nations have the power to ensure that outwardly the things of salvation, the preaching of the word and the administration of the sacraments, are available to all, and that people are encouraged, even culturally expected, to partake and be saved unto eternal life. As a concise summary, we can think of Christian nationalism as a Christian nation, acting as such, and for itself, in the interest of the nation's complete good. Four. Method. This is a work of Christian political theory. It is not overall a work of political theology. I say this both to manage expectations and to explain my method. There are two main reasons why I consider this a work of political theory. Assuming the Reformed Tradition The first is that I assumed the Reformed theological tradition, and so I make little effort to exegete biblical text. Some readers will complain that I rarely appeal to Scripture to argue for my positions. I understand the frustration, but allow me to explain. I am neither a theologian nor a biblical scholar. I have no training in moving from scriptural interpretation to theological articulation. Francis Turretin, the great 17th-century Reformed theologian, 
spoke of supernatural theology as the system of saving doctrine concerning God and divine things drawn from the scriptures. In this sense, theology can be understood systematically, that is, as a systematic articulation of revealed truth taken from scripture, for example, the doctrine of the Trinity. Instead of drawing from scripture to prove the reform system of doctrine, I've chosen to assume this system and work from it. I am unable to exegete better than the Reformed exegetical tradition anyway, and I frequently cite theologians whose work, to my mind, demonstrates the soundness of the Reformed system. All arguments have to begin somewhere. To my knowledge, my theological premises throughout this work are consistent with, if not mostly taken directly from, the common affirmations and denials of the Reformed tradition. To be sure, some of my conclusions are expressed differently than this tradition. After all, Christian nationalism was not used in the 16th through the 18th centuries, but none of my conclusions are, in substance, outside or inconsistent with the broad Reformed tradition. And of course, I would certainly welcome any work of political theology in favor of Christian nationalism that can stand side by side with this work of Christian political theory. If the reader does not have Reformed theological commitments, then I cannot guarantee that you share many of my theological assumptions. This is a work of Reformed Christian political theory, to be more precise. My desire for systematic argumentation led me to pull from a robust tradition within the Christian tradition. But since I pull mainly from the 16th and 17th centuries, in which Reformed theology was very Thomistic and Catholic, many of my theological premises are widely shared among Christians. Furthermore, when I cite non-Protestants, for example, Francisco Suarez, or pre-Reformation theologians, for example, Thomas Aquinas, I am not opposing or correcting Reformed Protestantism, but recognizing and pulling directly from the Catholic sources in the Reformed tradition. Proceeding from Natural Principles The primary reason that this work is political theory is that I proceed from a foundation of natural principles. While Christian theology assumes natural theology as an ancillary component, Christian political theory treats natural principles as the foundation, origin, and source of political life, even Christian political life. The nation, for example, is not merely a necessary component of Christian nationalism. It fuels that nationalism. It enlivens a Christian people for Christian nationalism. Whereas Christian theology considers the Christian mainly in relation to supernatural grace and eternal life, Christian political theory treats man as an earthly being, though bound to a heavenly state, whose political life is fundamentally natural. I call this a work of Christian political theory because I rely on both natural and supernatural propositions, i.e. from what is true from nature and from revelation, and I integrate them in my arguments. My method seeks not to prove the same proposition from reason and revelation separately, but to integrate natural and supernatural truth into a systematic political theory. So, throughout this work, I used mixed syllogisms, referring to syllogisms in which one premise is known by reason and the other known only by faith. For example, assuming that civil leaders ought to order the people to the true God, a natural principle, we can conclude that civil leaders ought to order the people to the triune God. Why? Because the triune God is the true God, a supernatural truth. I integrate natural principles and supernatural truths such that nature is applied and fulfilled by means of supernatural truth.
In this way, revealed theology serves to complete politics, but it is not the foundation of politics. Complexity Academically, my world is that of the early modern period, the 16th through the 18th centuries. What I love about this period is that authors made serious attempts to persuade using rational demonstration, and they were deeply conscious of the systemic nature of truth and the necessity of internal coherence. Unfortunately, the expectation for demonstration and coherence is largely absent in the Christian world today, especially in books and articles on politics. Instead, Christians resort to rhetorical devices, tweetable shibboleths, and credibility development to assert disparate principles and applications. I've decided to return, as best I can, to an older style, though I am an infant in comparison to their learning and abilities. As a result, my arguments are often not simple. I try to prove my most important conclusions such that if you accept the premises, you would have to accept the conclusion by the force of the logic. Whether I succeed in that is up to the reader's determination. In any event, that was my intent. To be sure, at obvious times, I grant myself some liberty to speak freely. My account of Christian nationalism is a Presbyterian Christian nationalism. It contains all the essential features of Christian nationalism, so it shares much with other forms of it. Thus, even if I cannot convince my readers of Presbyterianism, much of my argument remains applicable to their own tradition, and one might come to agree with the justness of Christian nationalism, but not follow me in my Presbyterianism. Given the state of our world today, I will consider that a success. 5. Summary of Argument General Summary In this section, I summarize the arguments of the book. The reader should consult the chapters to see my complete arguments, but I want to explain their general structures first. Chapters 1 and 2 show the theological possibility of Christian nationalism through a discussion of theological anthropology, i.e. the study of man in theology, and how it shapes social and political life. The several chapters that follow, chapters 3 through 7, explicate the definition of Christian nationalism, working through the concepts and its elements. These chapters complete my defense of Christian nationalism. I include chapters on two important related matters, revolution and liberty of conscience, and one chapter that provides sources for a resurgent American Christian nationalism. The conclusion is a series of thoughts on our current situation and how Christian nationalists can begin thinking about and acting for national renewal. What follows is a slightly expanded summary of this structure. What is man? In chapters 1 and 2, I discuss man in his three states, the state of integrity, the state of sin, and the state of redemption, or restoration. These follow the familiar reform schema of creation, fall, and redemption. The state of glory is crucial to my argument, but it does not get its own section. I describe man in each state and how the events of creation, fall, and redemption affect and change man. The purpose is to establish the continuity and discontinuity between the three states. I first argue that man has always had two ends, earthly and heavenly. Adam's original task, his dominion mandate, was to bring the earth to maturity, which served as the condition for eternal life. His work did not itself bring heaven to earth, but rather was the divinely prescribed condition for God to bestow eternal life on him and his progeny. Adam was equipped with all the skills and natural drive to accomplish this task. 
Indeed, fulfilling the dominion mandate was natural to him as his telos or natural end. The rule to this end was the natural law, and obedience to the natural law is manifested in dominion. If Adam had not fallen, he and his progeny would have multiplied on the earth. They would have formed communities, for no man can live well when alone and when not in combination with others. These communities would have been distinct or separate nations, because even unfallen man would have had natural limitations and been bound by geography, arability, and other factors. Furthermore, each community would have been culturally distinct, since they would have been at least somewhat separated from others and would have developed their own way of life and culture, though without any sin. Though the principles of culture are natural and universal, the particular expressions of culture are not in themselves natural. For this reason, although all cultures distinguish men and women with differences in clothing, the manner of distinction varies from culture to culture. Thus, cultural diversity does not necessarily reflect differences in natural principle. It follows that Adam's progeny would have formed many nations on earth, and thus the formation of nations is part of God's design and intention for man. The fall of man placed man in a state of sin. The state of sin or total depravity is misunderstood even in reformed circles. The fall's principal effect concerned man's relationship to God and the promised heavenly life, for it removed man's highest gifts, those that drew him to heavenly life. Man retains his earthly gifts, those that lead him to the fundamental things of earthly life, such as family formation and civil society. Thus, man still has his original instincts and still knows the principles of right action, which incline him to what is good. But the loss of his heavenly orientation affects his whole being, such that he sins not only in relation to God, but also toward his fellow man. The question is, what is the extent of discontinuity from pre-lapsarian or pre-fall Adam? I argue that post-lapsarian social organization, these as human society has manifested in post-fall history, reflects true and good principles, but in every time and place there is some degree of abuse of those principles. Thus, the formation of nations is not a product of the fall, it is natural to man as man. But the evil in nations and caused by nations is the abuse of what is intended for man's good. Neither is civil government introduced by the fall, for civil government would have been necessary for unfallen people to coordinate action for the common good. The fall required civil government to be augmented, to restrain sin, though it still retained its same original principles and end. The redemption of man brings him into a state of grace. This takes us to chapter 2. It is crucial to affirm that grace does not destroy, abrogate, supersede, or undermine nature, but rather affirms and completes it. The instinct to live within one's tribe or one's own people is neither a product of the fall nor extinguished by grace. Rather, it is natural and good. In the state of redemption, grace secures for man both a title to eternal life, the same life promised originally to Adam, and the restoration of his gifts. That is, salvation grants eternal life in Christ and a sanctified life in Christ. Having the same gifts as Adam, man is able to do, at least in form, what Adam could have accomplished in his work, which is to form nations under the true God. The people of God on earth are a restored humanity. Restored man ought to be naturally drawn to dominion, for dominion is the natural end or purpose of these gifts. 
Pursuing Christian dominion is not seeking to bring heaven to earth, nor is it seeking to earn heaven by works. One does not place himself back under the covenant of works by seeking to establish Christian civil communities on earth. As I said, even prelapsarian Adam could not bring heaven to earth through his labor. He could only order earthly life to the promised heavenly life. That is precisely what restored humanity does in his labor, order earthly life to heavenly life. The difference is that since Christ is the sole means to heavenly life, earthly life is ordered to Christ, mainly by supporting his visible church. Nation and Nationalism Having established the theological possibility and some background theology for the project overall, I move on to directly discuss Christian nationalism. Chapter 3 is on the nation and nationalism. Everything I affirm of the nation and nationalism, I can also affirm of Christian nationalism, as I stated earlier. My approach to the nation is different from that of others. Instead of relying on a bird's-eye view of the concept, I mainly appeal to the reader's own experience with people and place, to reveal to them their own belonging to a people and place. That is, I appeal to what I hope is common experience. I can do this because the previous chapters demonstrated that neither the fall nor grace eliminated the natural instinct for an attachment to people and place. Grace does not destroy natural affection, and our basic experience with regard to people and place reflects the way God created us. I show that we operate in our daily lives according to a background sense of familiarity, allowing us to relate to others with common understanding and mutual expectations. These are based in particulars as opposed to universal things, being unique to us as a people. With these, we can complete civic projects and other collective ends. Shared norms, customs, and meanings of places make possible the highest acts of earthly life. Language, for example, is a particularity, for there is no universal language, and sharing language is necessary for most meaningful civic activities. Since those who share a culture are similar people, and since cultural similarity is necessary for the common good, I argue that the natural inclination to dwell among similar people is good and necessary. Grace does not destroy or critique it. Choosing similar people over dissimilar people is not a result of fallenness, but is natural to man as man. Why? Because we are drawn by deep instinct to our good. Indeed, one ought to prefer and to love more those who are more similar to him, and much good would result in the world if we all preferred our own and minded our own business. Furthermore, since shared culture is necessary for living well, nations have a right of exclusion in the interest of cultural preservation. The Christian tradition recognized three types of love, benevolence, beneficence, and complacence. The first can be universal and equal, since one wishes the good of all. Beneficence, however, can only be directed practically at some, because one can help only so many people. The Christian tradition has recognized that one cannot love all people equally, and indeed one should not. Each of us ought to prioritize those who are closest and most bound to us. But beneficence, to my mind, does not fully explain why we actively labor for the good of those closest to us, for the good of our children, for example. It is too rationalist of an explanation, something pre-rational is at work. The Christian tradition has only hinted at this underlying motivation, which I call complacent love. 
Complacent was once used positively as a sort of delightful love for something. In my usage, it refers to the pre-rational preference we have for our own children, family, community, and nation. We have complacent love for our own children because they are most similar to us and most intimately come from us. We also have complacent love for our parents, extended family, and as John Herder would say, the family writ large, the nation. In this way, the background impulse to love some over others is a sort of complacent self-love, for the ground of the preference is similarity. Calling it complacent self-love won't preach, to be sure, but it is an accurate label for the position I'm advancing. Anyone concerned about self-love will find an extensive Christian tradition that affirms it. As for nationalism, the reader might expect that I follow the trend in treating it as a historical phenomenon. But I offer a more conceptual defense. Nationalism is the nation acting as a nation for its good. This is the ism of nationalism in my account. I do not appeal to historical examples of nationalism, nor do I waste time repudiating fascist nationalism. Indeed, in chapter 3, I do not spend much time on nationalism at all, except to argue that nations can exclude others in the interest of cultural particularity. Since Christian nationalism is a species of nationalism, much of my discussion of the former applies to nationalism considered generically and vice versa. Christian Nation and Christian Nationalism In Chapter 4, I discuss the Christian nation, and I address one major feature of Christian nationalism, the civil support for true religion. The Christian nation is a nation of Christians in which their everyday life is infused or adorned with Christian practices and Christian things. Christianity has not replaced their particularity, nor does Christianity undermine it. Though Christianity is a universal religion, a religion for all nations, it does not eliminate nations, nor does it create one global alternative nation, nor does it provide a universal gospel culture. Rather, Christianity assumes nations, as previously described, and completes them. Thus, we can speak of Christian nations. The Christian nation is a perfected nation in form, though no Christian nation is materially the same as another. Each one's shared and unique culture makes possible the nation's collective pursuit of the highest good. The second half of this chapter begins my discussion on the things that Christian nations do for their good which continues for two more chapters. These are the actions of Christian nationalism. A major component of Christian nationalist action is the civil government ordering the people to true religion. This is a natural duty of civil government, for civil government was always intended to order man to his complete good, which includes heavenly life. I offer several arguments, each of which conclude that civil government ought to direct its people to true religion. This is a natural principle of civil government. Throughout the book, I rely on this important point of logic. A supernatural conclusion can follow from a natural principle when it interacts with supernatural truths. Thus, given this supernatural truth that Christianity is the true religion, it follows from the above principle that civil government ought to direct people to the Christian religion. So, civil government fulfills a natural principle when it directs its people to revealed religion, and thus the secular and sacred are not confounded, but properly ordered, the lower serving the higher. As we shall see, 
An important question is whether a Christian nation can refuse to allow the immigration of fellow Christians from foreign lands. I argue that they can. The argument is that a spiritual relation, something that Christians share regardless of nationality, is different in kind from a civil relation, and therefore cannot serve as the ground for flourishing civil society. Sharing the highest good, a title to eternal life, does not mean that all Christians share what can provide the complete good, and indeed the journey to eternal life in this world requires cultural particulars for that journey. A common language, for example, is necessary for the highest form of encouragement in one's spiritual life. Imagine Christian and faithful in Pilgrim's Progress being unable to communicate. How far would they get? So, a unity in at least some particular things is a necessary condition for pursuing the highest good together. Thus, relying on conclusions from chapter 3, I argue that a Christian nation may exclude foreign Christians from immigrating when immigration would harm their ability to pursue their good. Nations ought to be hospitable, but they are not obligated to be hospitable to their detriment, just as a household ought to practice hospitality, but not to such an extent that it harms it or leads to its destruction. Cultural Christianity In Chapter 5, I defend cultural Christianity. Instead of defining it by its abuse, I define it as a supplemental mode of religion, which means that it supplements the work of spiritual ministry. It implicitly orders people to the Christian faith, though it cannot bring anyone to faith. Though not a spiritual force, it does remove hindrances to faith by making Christianity plausible, and it socializes people into religious practices in which one hears the gospel. I use the term social fact in this chapter as a way of describing how cultural Christianity operates in a community. It refers to social norms that are not centrally enforced, but still act as a sort of authority over the community and upon individuals in that community. It delineates what is normal and abnormal, and people proceed into these norms and expect others to do the same. All societies have these, and we too are thoroughly socialized into the norms of our society. My argument is that cultural Christianity, as the normalization of Christianity in civil society, sets social conditions that aid in the reception of the gospel and people coming to faith. It is akin to the Christian norms of the Christian family, which requires certain practices and forbids others in the interest of spiritual formation. Many are concerned with the hypocrisy that arises from cultural Christianity. I offer several reasons against this concern, though I fully admit that cultural Christianity by itself cannot produce anything but hypocrites. But it is not meant to stand alone. It ought to be one part of an organic whole that orders man to true religion, these family, civil government, and the instituted church. Furthermore, cultural Christianity is not limited to explicitly Christian things, for what perfects something is not a mere addition, but affects the whole of it. It shapes the totality of action for a nation's good. I argue that since cultural Christianity permits people in society to relate to each other as Christians, they are able to achieve a commodious or just earthly life together that exceeds what would otherwise be possible. In this chapter, I discuss the Christian nation's Christian self-conception. The people can say, we are Christian, and call themselves a Christian nation. Out of this self-conception comes the national will, for both earthly and heavenly life in Christ. This national will for itself is channeled through implicit and explicit authorities and results in a particular way of life. 
One role of this Christian way of life is socializing or discipling its people, especially younger ones, in the faith. Civil Law Though civil law can seem like a topic for lawyers, its philosophical and theological foundations are important for a range of questions and issues in Christian nationalism, from civil justice and civil power to justifying civil resistance and revolution. Civil law is an explicit ordering of communities, and every civil law reflects a particular judgment of civil rulers for public action. This is the emphasis of chapter 6. Only God can bind the conscience. Fellow man cannot, except by divine sanction, command you to do this or that particular thing. Man, as a moral being, is bound only by the natural law, or God's moral law, as the rule for his action. But the natural law in itself does not prescribe specific action. It must be applied. Applications are necessary in every sphere of life, the civil sphere, the family, and the individual. For the civil sphere, God ordained civil power as a mediator of divine civil rule, authorizing civil rulers to determine applications of natural law for the public good. This was necessary because individuals cannot always determine appropriate public action for the common good. Civil leaders, having the whole in view, determine suitable public action. Being mediators of God's civil rule, civil rulers issue civil commands expressed and promulgated as civil law, that are ordinances of God and bind the conscience, though only when they are just. These follow rationally from natural law. Thus, the true power of civil rulers is limited by justice, and any commanded injustice is not an ordinance of God, and therefore does not bind the conscience. This becomes more relevant when I get to the chapter on revolution. Civil law is the chief means by which civil rulers order their people to their good. The emphasis in chapter 6 is on civil law as a determination of the civil lawgivers and on how their determinations must reflect what is righteous and what conduces to good. A civil law is righteous if it flows rationally from the natural law, but this does not necessarily make it a good law. Each law must be suitable, given the circumstances and characteristics of the community. Thus, deliberation about civil law requires two things, a consideration of what is just in itself and a consideration of whether the law in question would conduce concretely to the good of a community. So, civil law is not mere philosophical reflection, nor should it be the rubber-stamped mosaic civil code. Civil law can direct men only outwardly. It cannot command the soul. The conscience is free from coercion. Still, civil law can outwardly order people to that which is good for the soul. Thus, Sabbath laws are just, because they remove distractions for holy worship. Laws can also penalize open blasphemy and irreverence in the interest of public peace and Christian peoplehood. The justification for such laws is not simply that God forbids these things in the first table of the Ten Commandments, but that they cause public harm, both to the body and the soul. The Christian Prince Chapter 7 investigates the chief agent of Christian nationalism, the Christian magistrate. I chose to use Christian prince because prince connotes a great man, not a bureaucrat or policy wonk. Our time calls for a man who can wield formal civil power to great effect and shape the public imagination by means of charisma, gravitas, and personality. The civil power of the prince comes immediately from God as the root of civil power. 
but the people, by their consent, are the instrument or mode by which God confers it on him. The people need civil authority, because the national will for its good is insufficient to order the nation. It needs some intermediating authority between the national will and national action. The prince has his authority precisely because of this national will, and thus he is charged by the people to order them concretely to the end of that will, namely, to their national good. The second half of chapter 7 concerns the prince's relationship to the visible church, which I frame with a Presbyterian view of two kingdoms theology. I will not go into specific details here, but I will offer some principles and conclusions. In my view, the visible church in itself, referring to things that materially conduce to a supernatural end, pastorship, profession of faith, preaching, sacraments, exercising keys of the kingdom, etc., are outward manifestations of the spiritual kingdom of God. As such, these things are outside the prince's civil jurisdiction. For example, while the pastor as man is under civil jurisdiction, he is not under it as pastor, but immediately under Christ, the only head of the church. The Christian prince can, in principle, remove error and reform the visible church, because no error is actually in the visible church itself for no error can exist in the kingdom of God. Error has only the appearance of proceeding from the visible church, and thus it is not, properly speaking, of God's visible kingdom. As such, it is subject to the jurisdiction of the civil magistrates. Furthermore, the prince can also approve of ministers as an expression of finding no fault with them. I also argue that the prince can institute religious days that, though not holy in themselves or necessary for the true worship of God, become relatively holy on account of their relationship to holy things. These are national celebrations or lamentations that conduce to national solidarity, a national Christian self-conception, and spiritual good unto heavenly life. Thus, even though the prince cannot institute sacred ceremonies, he can institute national events that facilitate and support these ceremonies which also strengthened the nation as a nation. The end of chapter 7 marks the end of my direct discussion of Christian nationalism itself. The next few chapters concern important related issues. Revolution Whether Christians may violently resist tyrannical authority was once debated among Christians. Hoping to reignite this debate, in chapter 8, I argue that Christians are morally permitted to violently remove tyrants. The right to revolution follows from the civil ruler's mediatorial role, and the fact that his power was ordained by God for the good of civil communities. It is not ordained for evil. Thus, any civil command to do evil or abstain from what is good is not a command of God, nor is it backed by divine power. It is a command of men, and no man by his own power can bind another man's conscience to action. To resist such power is not to resist God, but to resist tyrannical men. When refusing to obey an unjust command of a civil ruler, one can still recognize him as the true and legitimate civil ruler, having a right to command what is just by the power ordained of God. Thus Nero was certainly a tyrant, and ought to have been resisted when he commanded what was unjust. But his tyranny did not itself dethrone him. Christians ought to have obeyed him, for he could and did in many cases command what was just, even though he was a tyrant. 
Just disobedience is directed at the civil ruler as a man or as a person, not at the civil ruler as civil ruler. One can honor the man in his formal capacity, but disobey him as a man. For any civil ruler commanding what is unjust commands as a mere man, not as civil ruler. There is a difference between resistance to specific commands and resistance by means of revolution to dethrone and replace an existing ruler. A tyrant is one whose habit of tyrannical actions strikes at a fundamental good of human society. His actions are akin to an unprovoked war against the people. Thus, he is a man warring against the nation, and since any nation can defend itself against national threats, the nation can conduct war against him. A just, violent revolution is a type of defensive war. Revolution itself is the forcible reclamation of civil power by the people in order to devolve that power on just and more suitable political arrangements. I offer several arguments that justify deposing civil rulers. Generally, they rely on the conditional nature of rule, that the people installed or consented to his rule, and they can withhold their consent if he acts to their detriment. Remember, the civil ruler mediates the nation's will for its good by determining concrete national action. If his commands harm them, they can depose or remove him and enact better arrangements. National harm can include oppression against true religion, and thus the people can conduct revolution in order to restore true religion. I also argue that the people can forcibly remove rulers who act to the detriment of their particularity, viz. when he undermines their way of life, for particularity is necessary for a people's good. Liberty of Conscience Since my argument seeks to justify the political and social privileging or exclusivity of Christianity, questions naturally arise about the liberty of conscience, religious liberty, and religious toleration. These are legitimate and serious questions, for I affirm that the conscience is sacred and free and that no civil ruler has jurisdiction over the conscience. But there are many misunderstandings today concerning what Protestants once believed about the role of civil government with regard to false religion. Chapter 8 seeks to address those issues and misunderstandings. Much of the chapter involves a process of determining precisely what is at issue between modern religious liberty advocates and the classical Protestant position. Everyone agrees, one, that the civil magistrate cannot compel things that are properly internal, such as belief or feelings. Two, that he must not punish one for simply holding a false belief. Three, that he must not punish in order to reform an errant mind. And four, that he must not punish someone whose false religion causes no outward harm. The classical Protestant position is that the civil magistrate can punish external religion. For example, heretical teaching, false rites, blasphemy, and Sabbath-breaking, because such actions can cause public harm, both harm to the soul and harm to the body politic. Thus, the civil restraint of false external religion is not punishment for offending God, but the prevention of public harm. The role of civil government is to act upon society to remove what outwardly prevents or hinders man from achieving his ends including his supernatural end. But even if civil rulers may in principle act against false religion, can they determine what is true and false? 
I provide several arguments demonstrating that they can know both the general duties of natural religion and the truths of Christianity. Here is one argument. We generally agree that civil magistrates know, at least in principle, the natural duties captured in the second table of the Decalogue, the fifth through tenth commandments. Knowing these commands as law, the magistrate can conclude that there is a divine lawgiver. But if he knows of the lawgiver, he can know, at least logically and in principle, the first table commands, since those follow logically from God as God. Thus, there is no principled barrier to him knowing the duties of natural religion. In addition, the magistrate can know revealed truth, because a Christian ruler is installed from and by the people of God, who originally possessed the scriptures. So, in principle, he can know both natural religion and revealed religion, and therefore he may act against false religion, and can in principle distinguish it from true religion. But will he in fact do that? What about the prudential questions? Can we trust that civil rulers will not attack true religion? Doesn't history prove otherwise? And what about sectarian conflict? These questions are difficult to answer, for there is precedent in Protestantism of bloody conflict, especially in the first two centuries after the Reformation. One might ask, haven't we learned from experience to leave government out of religion? I agree that we've learned much, but we should also learn from our own time that governmental and societal neutrality are impossible, and that secularism is pervasive and relentless. It has evolved into a sort of pagan nationalism, in which bizarre moralities and rights are imposed upon all areas of life. Let us learn from all our experience. It seems to me that experience teaches us that established Christianity is better than its secularist alternative. Anglo-Protestant Experience Recognizing the importance of experience, I include a chapter on Protestant experience in early America. The purpose of this chapter is to show, first, that the political thought between the Puritan settlements and the American founding is coherent, at least with regard to the government role in religion, and second, that the apparent discontinuities between those eras are products of experience, not indicative of changes in principles. Thus, chapter 9 shows that the religious toleration in the founding era was rooted not in Enlightenment thought or liberalism, but in good Protestant principles applied in light of Anglo-Protestant experience. Early America is a Protestant resource for an American return to Christian nationalism. At least in their own telling, the New England Puritans applied the same principles of conscience that I outlined above. In every famous incident, they claimed that their action to suppress dissenting religion was in the interest of the community, often to quell suspected sedition and civil disruption, for example, Roger Williams, the Antinomians, and the Quakers, or to maintain the unique and particular characteristics of the community, for example, Baptists. One 17th century minister, Increase Mather, affirmed that it is not wrong in itself to extend toleration to Baptists to erect their own churches, and it would be appropriate in England but he denied that New England ought to do it, given their unique composition, fledgling status, and the original intention for settling. By the early 18th century, things had changed, and Increase's son, Cotton Mather, was preaching an ordination sermon for a Baptist in Boston. Increase was likely in the audience, and he approved of his son's actions. What changed was not principles or the injection of the Enlightenment. Rather, experience demonstrated the possibility of a pan-Protestant civil order, 
in which brothers in the Lord, though not sharing any formal institutional alignment, could live together in peace and even cooperate in a civil project. Jump to the founding era and we see continued discussion on religious liberty and institutional changes. I argue that the two opposing positions on religious liberty in that era assume explicitly Protestant principles, and that the majority position is the same as that of the New England Puritans, and virtually indistinguishable from Cotton Mather's. Experience taught them that suppressing false religion is counterproductive, that it both encourages false religion and causes cycles of war and conflict. Contrary to what many scholars have concluded, the founding era assumed Protestantism as the background condition for religious liberty. Thus, American religious liberty in the early American Republic was a people-specific development. Though its foundation was something universal, Protestant principles, the application of the principles was Anglo-Protestant. As such, religious liberty in the founding era was a cultural product from the self-reflection of a particular people. American Christian nationalists can pull from this part of the American political tradition, and so they do not need to reject the American founding or the entire American political tradition. In other words, American Christian nationalist is not a contradiction in terms, but rather an appropriate label for those who identify with the old American republic. 6. Forward Christian nationalists seek the instauratio magna, the great renewal. We struggle for the instauration of our homeland and the revitalization of our people. We are not conservative, nor are we traditionalist. We do not merely look to the past or to some past golden age. This is not an ideology of nostalgia. Still, we do not repudiate the past, nor do we desire to progress from some checkered ancestry. Rather, we look forward. We strive to take the future because we love our past. We love our homeland and its people. The desire of the nations must be a national desire, and the hope of the nations must be a national hope. The work of the Christian nationalist is convincing his Christian nation to be a nation for itself. A Christian nation ought to seek its good, both earthly and heavenly. This book justifies the Christian national will for its good, and it shows how that will properly manifests in natural, social, and civic relations and authorities. I pray that it also cultivates in the reader a love of home and a will for its renewal. Instarabant civitates desertus dissipatus, in generationem et generationem. Isaiah 61, 4. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to check out the full audiobook, The Case for Christian Nationalism by Stephen Wolfe, available now on Canon Plus. Mm-hmm.